Welcome to another episode of Chinese Manufacturing Insights by Artocraft Technology. I am your host, Abid Ali. In today's episode, it's a follow-up from part one, where we covered a common contract that we deploy with all of our suppliers and customers called a Manufacturing Supplier Agreement. It's a key step in our process to ensure everyone is on the same page with what the expectations are from one another so there is no confusion. Today, we'll be further exploring the Manufacturing Supplier Agreement contract, looking into the points, what to look out for during contract negotiations, and how to go about it. This episode was inspired by a recent consultation I did with one of our US customers who uses our template. The factory came back with quite a few seemingly minor changes, but had in fact undone a lot of the clauses, making them less liable to poor quality batches. In part one, we covered what should be included in a manufacturing supplier agreement. And in today's episode, we'll be running through a real negotiation between a factory and one of our customers, including some of the subtle points the factory changed in the contract and what the ramifications of this became. And now, if you haven't listened to part one already, I would highly recommend to do so as it gives an overview of what a manufacturing supplier agreement is and why it's important. Generally, the relationship between a customer and the supplier is key. And in reality, you know, when things go wrong, a lot of the time you can lean on the good nature of both companies and find a resolution. But at the end of the day, when something goes wrong and the agreement can't take place, you then have to rely on the contract signed. So really, this relationship is governed by what we call a manufacturing supplier agreement. Documents that outline the terms of engagement, the expectations, the responsibilities, the quality control policies, and what's expected by the contract manufacturer. Today, we'll explore these changes, understanding the implications and discussing strategies for navigating these new waters. So the first thing in the contract that was changed, it's clause to variations to purchase orders i.e. if you were to request to cancel, reschedule, suspend, or any variations to a PO. And in such cases, you know, the supplier would pay for any unavoidable third-party costs. Um, and, you know, the way to think about it, if you were to place a 10,000-unit order PO and you need to cancel it, Obviously, the factory has already placed a lot of orders for long lead time components to facilitate this. So it creates a very murky situation within this. Uh, what the factory wanted to do was, you know, if the customer wants production to be changed or cancelled, then you need to negotiate 60 days in advance. Um, and then the second point is a consumption plan will be made within 45 days of the request of change or cancellation. Uh, storage fees will be applied, manufacturing costs will be applied, management fees, labor costs. Um, and um, in the current year, the parts need to be disposed of or used before December the 5th. Now, a few things to point out. That fr phrase is a very pro-factory phrase. You know, they would love it that you covered all the costs and got rid of the stock ASAP. And rather interestingly, if it stays in the factory, well, they're allowed to bin it at the 5th of December, regardless if the cancellation's in November. So there's a lot of wrong with this. And there is a happy medium ground. So what we did was we elaborated further on this. Is 
we went back to, we can request the cancellation, rescheduling, suspension, variation of a PO. In such cases, we still pay unavoidable third-party costs. However, the supplier shall use all reasonable means to limit any such unavoidable costs from being occurred. We also said that we will notify the supplier in writing 30 days in advance. Now, when you're doing a cancellation or changing it, you're not going to know in advance. In reality, you're not going to know 60 days in advance, let alone 45 days, 30 days, maybe. But in reality, if someone's canceling an order to you, you have to pretty much immediately cancel an order to a factory. So it's a very immediate step. Um, and so we wrote as mid-ground 30 days because sometimes you can anticipate things, especially if you're trying to get a deposit from a customer and they don't pay the deposit. That would be the first um, red flag. And so what we also wrote in the close is that we will immediately notify um, the factory, but also the factory will immediately notify of all the PO components already purchased for that PO. And so we will accept the liability for the components already purchased and will aim to clear the stock through within 12 months of the purchase order date or pay the true cost of the bomb for these components. And so again, this is important where before they wanted it done on the 5th of December, regard of every year regardless. Here we're saying, well, give us 12 months, but also we're not going to pay for all of these other unnecessary costs like management fees, material fees, and all these other fees, they'll, that'll rack up a, into a lot of costs. What we'll do is we'll pay for those components already purchased. And therefore we are liable for those parts. And then the factory's not out of pocket. And that's the whole point. You know, in this situation, the factory hasn't paid anything. They've still got the stock in their warehouse. So they're actually pretty happy because they're not out of pocket. And really when you place your next order, what will happen is you've already paid for some of the parts. So you don't have to pay for those parts again what will happen is you'll take that value off um, the uh, PO amount or in that contract you do a swap where the factory would pay you back and you'd go back to the normal terms. Um, and this makes it a lot easier um, and cleaner, especially when you're saying true cost of the bomb. And furthermore, what we said is we'd be liable for stock up to the PO amount and cannot accept responsibility for components purchased beyond the PO amount. It's quite often that MOQs are higher than the PO amount, or sometimes the factory just orders more parts because they're trying to save money. You know, if your PO is, let's say, 20,000, but they see that at 30,000, the parts are cheaper, they're not going to give you that savings. They're going to buy the 30,000 and chance it. And so in the cancellation, it's a bit awkward because they've overpurchased to save money and it's obviously backfired from their point of view. Um, and so what we wrote is we're liable up to the PO amount because we shouldn't be responsible for them over purchasing components, you know, for them to save money, money that isn't normally passed on to us. And so even with these components up to the PO amount, the supplier will assist the customer by attempting to sell the stock back at market rates um, or the open market. Quite often, if you're stuck with a lot of stock, as long as it's a standardized I'd say connector or wire or piece, you could normally return it pretty easily uh, with very little costs associated. And the last piece of this clause that we elaborated on is that this clause is not applicable if there's an epidemic problem. And now we've got a clause of non-conformity or epidemic failure. 
um, nor a breach in manufacturing quality standards as outlined in one of our schedules. And really, this is only applies in the case of normal, good quality production. And another example this is for is not just cancellation of POs, but imagine if you find a quality issue and suddenly you don't want to place that 20k order because you don't know if the same QC problems are going to occur, in which case you'd stipulate that actually we're changing this to 1,000, then maybe 4,000, then 5,000, then 10,000 to then give you that 20,000. And the idea is to give everyone a chance to actually make those changes and also test that those changes are effective and are solving the quality issues. Um, and then you're not liable for all of this because in reality, if there's a QC issue and we've got another place and another clause in our manufacturing quality standards, that protects you for this. And that's the idea is a lot of the time, these, pro these won't be a problem. A lot of the time, the factory will play game. But if worse comes to worse, you can always rely on this um, statement that they've agreed to before you've even started production. And, you know, it's fair enough that the factory doesn't want the flexibility in PO cancellations. You've got to think about it both ways. They're out of pocket if you cancel a PO. You know, what stops you from saying, we want a 50,000 order and then changing it to five all the time? You know, it creates quite a mess in the factory. So you want to play game and play fairly in this. And that's the and that's the stance I normally take is it's not pro-customer and pro-factory. It's, you know, what's industry standard and what's fair? You know, who's out of pocket? Where does the money flow? Um, and just making sure it's fair based on whose, you know, fault it was. Because at the end of the day, if you're cancelling a PO, it's, you know, your distributors who have or seller's fault. And normally you have a contract with them where you can reclaim a lot of these costs. So normally it's not that big of an issue. Um, and at the end of the day, whoever initiated the cancellation, i.e. your distributor or reseller, ends up paying those costs, whether it is for last minute cancellations. This is quite normal. And so hopefully you can see there's subtle differences. You know, if we had stayed with the 60 days in advance and you have to consume it all by the 5th of December, you're basically unnecessarily throwing money away, you know, and it's impossible to know 60 days in advance for cancellations. So it's a moot point. So in reality, you're not really negotiating anything here. You pay the factory regardless, and that's not really fair, nor the industry. Um, accepted route and so hopefully you can see from this change in elaboration we've able to enhance the contract and clause quite a lot and made sure it's fair look we're still paying the unavoidable third-party costs we're still agreeing to that we're still agreeing to pay for things that were purchased as long lead time parts we're just trying to be fair that you the factory can store the parts for 12 months there's nothing wrong with that things don't need to get rid of like asap Imagine if you cancel in November and you have to get rid of the stock a month later, like it doesn't make any sense. And so this unmerks the water and makes it a lot more clear of what the process is and what it looks like. And so the factory knows that from the get-go. And you know, this isn't going to happen all the time. This is a rare incident, but if this rare incident occurs, then at least the process is mapped out in your contract. The next um, point that was pushed back was uh, review of supplier performance. This was a bit uh, strange, but I guess in our original contract, it was quite strict. You now, we would say that we have the right to review of performance on a six-monthly basis. And if the supplier is not 
performing in accordance to our terms, then we could, in absolute discretion, have the right to terminate the agreement, giving notice and have no penalties. I could see how this is very scary from a factory's point of view. And so we thought we'd elaborate it a little bit further. In reality, when you're reviewing a factory's performance, uh, you have a, you know, 130 different long list of points that you've got to check. Some examples are, you know, what is the management's quality health checks? You know, are there independent QA leaders um, and departments? What percentage of the staff are Six Sigma belts? And even going through uh, the specifications, you know, are the technical changes recorded in the system? Is there even a system to record all the changes and all of the bill of materials? How often are the material storage and handling process controls checked. How often is incoming quality inspection during production inspection and final production inspection carried out? You know, it's 130 different points really going down more of a factory's processes rather than the actual product because you want to check that it's all up to standards. And in reality, at the beginning of every uh, journey we take, the factory we choose will always go through our initial factory assessment. And by this, we actually go through the checklist and make sure the factory processes are to expect it. And usually it's a pass fail. And, you know, it's scored usually seven out of 10, where below seven is a fail, above seven is a pass. And most factories would get between seven and eight because it's quite strict. And so they would have already gone through this process and this wasn't clear in the contract. And so what we did instead was we wrote that we've retained the right to review the performance on a six monthly basis, primarily through our continuous improvement program and stipulated that the factory had already gone through this one time already six months ago and had already passed quite well. So they shouldn't be worried. The whole point of doing this check again is just to check like what if their quality, um, director has left and no one's there as a replacement, you know, how does that affect other quality processes in the factory and these things have happened in the past and the idea of these checks are to send to check if any changes have happened in the factory does it actually uh, apply to any of the processes have they been picked up or not because if it's affecting the factory processes it will inevitably affect the quality of your products regardless of how well designed it is um, and therefore what we did was we resent them the checklist we already gave them their previous report told them look you already have passed, we expect you to keep passing. This is a clause in the contract saying you need to, you know, be improving, but also not getting worse, you know? And if anything happens that makes you get worse, you need to uh, remedy it pretty quickly because um, it affects not just our products, but all the products in the factory. Um, so typically good factories will be on top of this. Uh, and that's what the clause is. It's not to be super strict. Oh, we can leave you at any point, but more, look, you've really done this once. We expect you to maintain that level of professionalism and process control throughout the time that we're utilizing you. And if things go you know, bad, we can actually show you what specifically has gone poorly um, through our reports and therefore mm -hmm. um, give them a chance to actually improve it. Usually we would give them three months or six months, depending on the nature of the changes that need, um, and give them a chance to really improve on it so that we can uh, keep good quality products. And that's really the whole purpose of the clause. Now, part of this was the factory took it the wrong way, fine. 
we are presenting them a pro customer uh, contract. You know, the whole point is, look, we're very strict with this. Fine, we'll play a game. And the idea is it's very different going from a pro factory contract where you have to like negotiate everything to telling them how it is and then negotiating down. You just end up being in a much better place. And the Chinese factories normally respect you a lot more because they know you're not new to China. They know you've done this many times in the past and they know they're not going to bullshit you um, and you're not easy fish, as I mentioned in the previous podcast um, within this. Payment terms, minor point. You know, we wrote that the uh, deposit has to be paid um, and that we want to move to a 45-day net term. Wasn't very um, stipulated well or understood by the factory and so we kind of, we elaborated on this uh, more than anything. So the factory wanted a 70% deposit um, and then 30% uh, before shipment. No, fine. The way I think about it is... Payment terms vary from even the culture. If you were a Chinese factory, you would actually get 0% deposit and then 100% paid after you've been asked three times after about 60 days after shipment. And if you're a big company, like a big retailer, you'd get 60, 90 days and you don't have to pay anything up front. Now, I'm not expecting any of my listeners to have those terms. Really, the normal terms we go for is a 30% deposit and then actually 70% before shipment after our quality inspection and i think this is a nice middle ground because the 30 deposit shows you're serious you actually want to place this order if anything goes wrong you know the factories arguably covered all their costs and i know some factories will go oh you must pay 100 percent before as a deposit that's normal well it's not normal the problem with paying 100 percent before uh you've even checked the shipment is if anything goes wrong and let's say you've done a final quality control or your goods arrive in the UK, US or Europe and you find a problem with it, they're not going to fix it. So assuming you check it and usually what we do is we send an inspector to every batch that we uh, produce, we make a report, we check all the, it's called a final quality control audit. You can find a lot more of this on our website. And the idea of this report is to check what's being produced is what we wanted. And then that way... Once we've paid the deposit, once we've passed the inspection, we can then pay for the remainder of the fee. Problem is, if it fails, then we have the right to not pay and they're stuck with the 30% deposit. And then what happens there is the factory is motivated to actually fix or rework your batch because they know they haven't been paid yet. Whereas if they have been paid, they'd take their sweet time about it because in all honesty they don't care you're not a priority anymore they've got their money and sadly that does happen quite often and that's why we never do 100% before as a deposit the maximum we do as a deposit is 50% you know our nice sweet spot is 30 it's not reasonable we can go as high as 50 but what we absolutely do is we check the stock check the batch and if it passes then we'll give the rest of the money up front now What's interesting about payment terms is if you are, if they are pushing for a 50, 60, 70% deposit, then you can actually push back and ask for a 5% discount on the unit cost. You know, generally with Chinese factories is cash is king. And so if you're giving more cash than 30%, you can push for a discount, right? Um, and then that's their way of saying, okay, that's fair. And you've done this before. New players to China would never actually see it from this point of view. They wouldn't realize you can push for more of a discount and would just give 100% upfront. 
if you're giving 100% upfront, you should ask for a 10% discount on the unit cost, possibly even more, because cash is king and it's a risk. And the idea is to de-risk it. And that's why we always go for a 30% deposit. Um, we don't ask for a discount because it's 30%. If it's 50%, we do ask for a discount on the unit cost. Um, and then once we've done the FQC, we'll then move to 100% deposit. What we wrote in the contract, well, was exactly this. And then what we also said was we want to move to a net 30 or 45 day payment terms. And this is after five, six, seven shipments when the factory is more comfortable dealing with us, knows we're going to pay, know that we've got this history. Then they're more willing to move to a 30 day net cycle. And that would be after production. But normally you need to have very, a very good relationship with your factory. And it's very difficult uh, to actually get these terms before it. And let's face it, if you're getting those terms, the way the factory would see it is, oh, okay, we need to save on costs as much as possible and minimize the risk from their point of view. And what ends up happening is even if you get the 30-day net at the beginning, you then lose out on quality checks uh, from the factory because they're just not taking you seriously. So you need to find this magic middle ground where you know it can move, where you're trying to play fairly and build up this good relationship between you know, you and the factory. You know, this is the whole point of the contract. The whole point of the contract is to make sure the factory understands your expectations, that it's not done when you're placing the purchase order or even later down the line. The whole idea is you're setting expectations right from the beginning and they either agree or disagree. And look, if they're disagreeing to a lot of this, it means they're not a very good factory. Let's put it that way. They're used to doing quite slapstick jobs. They're used to getting paid a lot of cash up front and they're not the type of supplier you want to be playing game with because if this is how they're treating a deposit, how are they going to treat your goods, right? They're rushing to get the payment. How do you think they're going to do with your goods? Are they going to take their time? No, they're going to rush through it and there'll be quality control issues and they don't care because they've got the money. Cash is king and you've got to play a similar game, you know, and balance on this fairness you know you're not pushing for 30 45 or 60 days net you're actually just saying look we'll pay a deposit if you want a large deposit give us a discount if not let's sit in this happy middle ground and by the way we're going to check the stock before we even pay you the rest and then that way everyone's happy you know the goods are to the quality you want it the factory knows you're not playing games it's stipulated in writing in the contract and that you will pay once it's passed. And if there's any problems, obviously they'll improve and work on it. Um, and so, yeah, it was important in the contract to elaborate on this a lot further to make sure they didn't misunderstand uh, what the expectations are. So just to recap, you know, our proposed definition of epidemic failure is 1%. Uh, and it's actually right there on our second page. It will encounter resistance, but hopefully you can see there is a variation between the industry standard, which is 3%, but we aim much above industry standards. So we push for 1% and our best suppliers aim for 03 to 0.5%. Um, and it's crucial because, you know, when you're starting to work with a factory, you want to know what their expected failure rates are, what is acceptable from their point of view, how willing are they to actually improve their quality controls. And bear in mind, you know, major manufacturers like Foxconn, Samsung often target 0.1 to 0.3%. Uh, but most standard suppliers, you know, will be set between 0.5 and 3%. Um, if a factory has a lot of automation, then 1% is really easy. You know, 0.5 is really easy. There's a lot of manual work, then that's why they'll be towards the 3%. And the reason you'd look at two different factories, maybe you've got two options, one at 1%, one at 3%. The 1% will be more expensive by how much. That will be an interesting 
comparison, I should say only 5% uh, of the bomb cost. But hopefully you can see you know, having stricter QC will affect the bomb. So it really also depends the type of product and the type of cost your product is aimed at. You know, is it at the $15 mark, the $50 mark, the $200 mark, or the $500 mark? It all, based on the unit cost, will directly impact the quality control. Because face it, if you're buying something for $500, you expect something to be good quality. If it's $15, you expect, you know, there'll be a few issues with it. And so it's really matching to the customer's expectations within this um, as well. Because at the end of the day, if you test every single little piece, you know, you end up being Samsung and Apple where your product is very expensive because it's gone through all of these stringent testing. And unless you're building an Apple-esque product, you know, which most people aren't, then going between one to 3% is okay. So now we've got, uh, three more points where the factory actually negotiated out the product phase out period, the warranty and insurances. So the product phase out period, what happens at the end when, you know, your sales is approaching the end of its cycle, um, and you're moving on to a new product. And so the factory wanted additional time for the phase out information. They were pushing for six months which I think is fair in our original clause, you know, we had three months fine. Um, but one of the big changes were they again, confused this with cancellation. So they were concerned that, you know, there's going to be surplus stock and all these things occurring. So you need to be fair to your factory three to six months telling the factory in advance is fine. Cause in reality, you'd be planning a phase out one to two years in advance. Um, if you're doing things properly. And so it's good to notify the supplier that, look, in the next year, I am, you know, if this is 2024, maybe your phase out period begins in 2025, but like, Hey, look, we're going to give you an advance warning. This is what we're thinking. Um, and the idea is they're going to have long, high MOQs for certain components. And you want to try and match your POs as best as possible to their stock. Cause at the end of the day, if they have to purchase a part in 30,000 uh, MOQ, um, and you've reached the threshold and they've just purchased another 30,000, but you're only ever going to purchase 5,000 pieces. Um, then they're stuck with 25,000 units of that stock. And if you tell them in advance, you know, they can negotiate with their supplier, say, look, we're going to pay a little bit more. We only need the 5,000 because we're phasing this out. Um, and this way they can negotiate with their supply chain in advance. And maybe you need 5,000, but they'll say, look, we can only make 4,000 because that's what the stock is left unless you want to pay X amount of dollars to overbuy. Uh, you know, this might be an extra two, $3,000, which isn't too bad. You know, and you can basically make these decisions in advance. Um, and this helps both parties because nobody wants to be stuck with excess stock. And that's why it was good to elaborate further on what a phase out period is. We agreed to the six months. It's not a problem because at the end of the day, our phase outs, you know, we plan this two years in advance and definitely a year in advance, we know it's happening. And so from a supply chain uh, management point of view, you know, we're very on top of it. And so should you, otherwise you end up with a lot of random bits and pieces that nobody really knows how to get rid of. And on the open market, it may be worth a lot or it might not. Warranty. So 
Quite often, a 12-month warranty is standard from factories. Now, if you're selling in the EU, you need 24 months. And so quite often, they will also accept 24 months if it's within the EU. This was a US customer, so they knew they could only accept 12 months warranty. And so we had actually put 18 months. The reason being is whenever we see 12 months um, or 24 months, the factory starts that from when it's shipped from the factory. Now, obviously, it takes time. You put the goods onto a boat. Two months later, it arrives at your warehouse. A month later, you've sent it to your reseller or distributors or uh, retailer's warehouse. And then they have to put it on shelves or sell it to customers. And normally, this takes six months, you know, until it's actually in the customer's hands. Um, and so we like adding an extra three to six months onto this so that it covers that time. And actually, our clause in the contract, what we said, that the warranty can begin from when the goods are picked up from the factory for 18 months or can begin from 12 months from when it is first uh, purchased from the customer and basically whichever is the soonest and then this way if a customer gives you a brand new product that they've purchased you can see their receipt you can see the date you can actually send this to the factory even if you've gone over the period and been like look they've only used this product for 10 months, let's say, and they've got two months on the warranty, you should adhere to this. And then it gives you the flexibility because at the end of the day, you know, what you don't want is there to be issues at the end of the 10 months and then you're out of pocket because it should be under warranty, but it's not because of a manufacturing issue. Um, and when the factory is liable, they're then more likely to carry out reliability tests to make sure it does last this 12 months with the customer because that's the idea of warranty. You know, the idea of warranty is to ensure products last a minimum amount of time. In reality, in our tests, we aim for five years. There's nothing stopping you other than a small increase to bond cost, 5% of actually making your product more and also putting in that time and effort of carrying out proper reliability testing. And I'm not talking about the standard ones like one meter drop tests 10 times onto wood. I'm talking about 1.6 meter drop tests 26 times onto concrete, you know, proper robust testing because then your products just don't break they don't they will last to five years and you don't need to worry about the warranty you only worry about warranty which affects your brand reputation you know if you're just aiming for the bare minimum your customers will feel it you'll feel it and if you're taking that extra step and we're talking about a couple of weeks of testing and maybe a five percent increase to bomb you just won't have those problems you know, it's a whole different level of engineering and thinking when you're designing something for 12 months compared to five years. Um, and even if you don't hit the five-year mark, that's fine. You'll probably hit the four-year mark or in a lot of cases, when you're aiming for five-year, the product will last 10 years. And this is like a very old school type of thinking. I say old school. A lot of manufacturing from the 60s all the way to the 90s followed this. This is why you'll still see old work Walkmans still working and even, you know, N64s and Segas, they had this mindset away from the, you know, mentality we have now of buy everything new, buy the latest version. And this really shows in the design. Um, and there's a big shift in the design principles right now, going back to, well, you know, if a product lasts five years, you don't have to buy so many products. So it's actually a lot more sustainable and renewable to make it um, last longer and even to make it repairable. And this goes to the next point, you know, out of warranty repairs, you want the customer to be able to have 
um, access to parts to repair their product and therefore you need to have that access from the factory. So we had this clause, which the factory again didn't understood, so we elaborated it on, that out of warranty repairs, um, the parts will be made available from the factory. You might have to buy this in maybe a thousand or 500 pieces, some of the subcomponents, so that repairs can take place. Otherwise, the factory just won't, won't bother. You know, if you're, imagine you're two years into a project, it's going to be very hard for a factory to agree to this. So you end up having to cannibalize a lot of units. And I've seen this in the past where people have made a production run specifically for it to be taken apart because the factory didn't agree to take it apart. They thought they would. And this is why you can lean on your contract and be like, look, it's in the contract. This is what you agree to. This is what we're sticking to. So please uh, follow it. And now, final point insurances. So we are now approaching the end of the podcast. This is the final point. Insurances, which quite often gets missed from contracts. I see this, you know, there's general liability insurance, which covers, you know, bodily injury, property damage, personal risk, contractual liability, and a whole lot of different things, but it doesn't pay out a lot, which is why we also have workers' compensation insurance. So if a new machine you introduced heavily injures um, a worker like fingers or arms or limbs then they're actually well looked after and I feel like you know ethically you should be one making sure the worker is never in that situation and then two if they are they're actually properly looked after because at the end of the day it's your fault if they're getting injured the next one umbrella excess liability and this is a lot more well less known but this is for your extreme situations like your product falls off a boat or your container goes missing or something gets us on fire and this normally um, exceeds and works in conjunction to our all risk property insurance you know so it you get the replacement value back of your goods and you're not out of pocket within this. You know, insurances can be useful and can be relatively cheap, especially if you're shipping normally in a container. You know, that's anywhere between 100000 to $500,000 worth of goods. If that goes missing, you're going to be very sad. <laughs> you know, so insurances can be useful for this situation. It doesn't happen very often. But I remember when I was helping this laptop factory, there's a laptop factory right next door that got burnt down. Luckily, it didn't affect ours, but we immediately checked all the insurances and we were like, look, what what would have happened if that fire would have spread to us? Luckily, it didn't because at the other factory, all of their stock was gone. All of their assembly line, all of their tools, packaging, everything was completely burnt down. <laughs> what do you do in that situation, right? And this is where insurances can be very useful. It can actually help you to, one, the factory to even get back off their feet and to continue to assist you pretty quickly. Um, and also for any goods that are lost, you're not out of pocket. Because at the end of the day, even if it's the factory's responsibility, if they're bankrupt because of a fire, you're not getting the money back. And that's why insurances can be important. The final one is product recall insurance. Optional, we always say that you should go for it. But it goes back to the epidemic failures. What happens when things go wrong? And recalls, you know, they cost hundreds of thousands. So we're not talking about a small amount. And we've had the situation where um, one of our customers, before they were a customer of ours, had a recall and the customer didn't, and the factory didn't pay up. They just cut their ties and moved on. And there's nothing stopping that f a factory from doing that. 
Um, especially if it's not in the contract, they would just terminate it. There's nothing about recalls in the contract, so tough luck. Um, and so really it's to prevent this. You can always say, look, we told you about the insurance coverage. This is an extreme case, but look, we need to recall. You need to pay up. Um, and so the fact you're being out of pocket, they can at least get insurance to cover this, which again is not very expensive compared to what recalls are. And I've definitely seen brands know this happened to and i'm sure you've seen brands you know on the news this happens to there's a lot of unknown unknowns and even with the best intent things can go wrong you know and that's the whole point of this is preventing and being proactive about things going wrong and reducing that chance and now there will always be a small chance but that's why you've got these backups um in case or not in your contract you know with a lot of the points that i covered you know the po amendments and cancellation terms, even the review of supply performance, the payment terms, the definition of epidemic failure, the product phase-out period, warranty, insurances, you should actually check that these are properly covered in your existing contracts um, so that when things go wrong, you're at least proactive about it rather than reactive. And usually factories are more likely to agree to these terms when the problem hasn't occurred. When the problem has occurred, they're not agreeing to it. Like, it's not written down. It's not happening. And so, that concludes the end of this podcast. Uh, what we did today was we ran through some of the negotiation points uh, that one of the factories and uh, one of our customers had, actually. And you can see how... If the factory had their way, you know, there's a lot of points that ends up making this contract pro-factory. You know, just because you've got a contract in place doesn't mean you're completely covered. It's actually what's contained in the contract that's important. Um, and, you know, we've done this about 50 plus times quite easily. And so we're very familiar with the contract and all the terms um, and quite fluent in it, which is why we have this as part of the negotiation right at the front. The contract is you setting expectations. That's what it is. If you want to work with us, this is how you abide by. Nice and easy, covers everything. If they've got questions, you give the factory an opportunity to say no. And if they don't want to work with those conditions, that's okay. We move to another factory. Because in reality, if they're not accepting these conditions, it means they were going to cheat you anyway. And so you've dodged a bullet in that respect. That's the whole point of this contract, nice and early before production. Everything could go swimmingly. Everything looks great on paper. But when it comes to them putting their name against it, you know, that's something else. And they thoroughly check this and get back to you. And it's okay for them to negotiate as long as you know what's fair and what the industry standard is for it. And if not, you know, you can always contact us about this. This is what we're here for, to help. We make products day in, day out, and contracts are just core to our processes. So we're very fluent in this. And yeah. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Hopefully you know it's not a full extensive list as you'd learned from part one. Our contract is 27 pages um, and we can offer this as a template to assist you and even assist on the negotiations point. And I hope you've enjoyed what was covered today. You know how the PO cancellation terms can vary from pro-customer to pro-factory, why manufacturing supply agreements are important uh, within this, how definitions of certain terms, whether it's an epidemic failure rate of 1% to 3%, what that can actually tell you about a factory and some of their insights, um, as well as their willingness uh, for warranty or even phase-outs and how they approach reviews um, of supplier performances. It's all very important and can give you a lot of insights very early on. What you don't want to do is 
work with a factory, get a few batches in, have already paid $50,000 in tools and certificates and you're stuck with them, right? And then they don't want to cover the costs. And then suddenly you have to cover the costs because you have no other choice. And the whole point of this is to give you that choice back because once you've done this a lot of times and you're a seasoned professional in China, you know you can um, enforce this. You know, you're not afraid that you're being unreasonable. It's all being paying fair to the factory, but also to yourself uh, within this. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And like I said, check out part one of why MSA Manufacturing Supply Agreement is important. And I hope you've enjoyed today's episode as well. I'd like to thank my listeners um, for joining me on today's episode. And if you want any more information, uh, you can visit our website, www.ardencraft.com, or you can find me on LinkedIn, Mohammed Abid Ali. Um, or you can go on the website and book a meeting with me directly. And we can chat all about this and all about your product journey um, and how we can really add this value to give you this freedom and flexibility so you're not stuck with a factory and how to, and if you are how to get unstuck from all of it i'd like to thank my listeners once again i hope you have a great rest of the day thank you and goodbye